I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Bellwether Hub. I am very excited about this particular issue. It is uh, one that a lot of people like to talk about, a lot of people like to have opinions on, um, and uh, I feel like a lot of it comes from a place of misinformation, and that's why I'm, I'm thrilled to have our guest. Uh, and the, the topic is technology and and how to detangle yourself from technology. We we always talk about how the impact of, of social media, the impact of sitting in front of your phones all of the time and sitting in front of your computers all of the time and, and what effect that has on us as a society, as an individual, uh, what, what it does to our psychology. Uh, I feel like technology is a lot like money and time. Most people don't know how to properly use it. And that's why we have Pete Dunlap on. Pete is, uh, he's made it his life's work to hit the pause button and really question what's the appropriate use of technology, how to actually make it work for you, and how do you implement technology into your life and not make your life adjust to the technology around us. And, and technology is changing extremely quickly. Society is changing extremely quickly. Sometimes it's difficult to keep up. So being able to separate yourself from technology I feel is is an extremely important skill set to have, especially as the economy changes and, and things can be, be, be difficult to adapt to. So um, he wrote his book called Digital Detangler, A Guide to Mindful Technology Use. Uh, I read it. I loved it. I found it very helpful, very interesting. And what I loved most about it is that it's extremely practical. And uh, in fact, I was just talking to him before we started recording. Uh, I like practical things. I, I don't like to just necessarily talk a theory. I like people to actually learn something uh, from it and use uh, information or have an exercise that they can implement into their particular life. So that's that's why I'm so happy to have him on here, because he is chock full of practical advice on how to detangle yourself from technology and how to use it properly. So with that being said, I would like to introduce Pete Dunlap, author of Digital Detangler. Pete, welcome to Bellwell the Hub. Hey, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about you. Tell me about Digital Detangler. Tell me about your whole entire story before we get really into the details. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just start by saying um, Digital Detangler works with leading organizations to cut wasted time, um, particularly in corporations. This is a big issue. And it, we also lower employee stress levels um, through workshops and speaking engagements. So that's that's Digital Detangler in a nutshell. Um, my path to, to found Digital Detangler is, uh, I guess, goes, goes way back, which is when I was a teacher. And so I spent several years sort of traveling the world as an international teacher. And throughout those years, um, I was kind of getting close to wanting to do some, build some software. And then when I moved to Nashville, I had the opportunity to, to do that. And I spent then about the next four years building software. And that transition was brutal, you know, between going from such a structured environment as a teacher. I mean, every down to, down to like you can use the toilet in this five minute period. And so when I transitioned to being a software developer, I, I mean, I hardly even had meetings. It was just kind of you've got this Internet connection, you've got a great laptop and you're supposed to get work done. 
And that was very difficult at first, but I learned about a lot of kind of practical things to kind of rebuild your digital environment to stay more focused. And so after several years of doing that, I, uh, I'd kind of built up these tools to, uh, to be effective. And a lot of my friends who were software developers didn't know about a lot of this stuff. And most of it is like super practical, super easy, easy install kind of things. And I was like, if software developers don't know about this, definitely no one else knows about this. And there are a lot of people out there, you know, helping, helping aging parents, that kind of thing, learn to use technology. And so I, I'm really not trying to do that. I'm really trying to help people who use technology day in, day out. How can you kind of make peace with, with the way you use technology? How can you not feel as overwhelmed, um, but still be effective? And um, one of the things I'll also add is that I'm, I'm not huge on like this whole digital detox con. Um, concept. I'm more about like, how do you get through your days without feeling super stressed? Um, Which was going to be, so that's going to be one of, that was going to be one of my questions. You've got your people who just say, you know, let's go back to the stone age. Life was much better when I just, you know, read the New York times in the hard paper. I go to the library to get my book, leave my technology alone. Um, don't touch your phone. Don't look at it after eight o'clock. You're not necessarily that hardcore you think that it's appropriate obviously we're going to be using technology i feel like it's more a more realistic view of how to respond right yeah i mean i think there's there's certainly evidence that that technology is adding stress to our lives and you know i mean it's it's just a matter of the vast majority of people are not about to kind of move to a cabin and uh there are there are massive benefits to a lot of the technology we use and this is this is one one distinction i think is very important is the distinction between sort of um, manipulative user interfaces. So something like Snapchat has a streak feature, right? Which encourages people to log in every single day. And particularly for young people, that's a, a very big kind of motivator. They go in every day to keep their streaks with their good friends alive. And so that's manipulative in the sense that, that Snapchat wants to report to their investors a high percentage of their users are daily active users. Um, and I would separate that from technology, um, which allows us to do things that we couldn't do before. Um, so if you think about email uh, versus pre-email when you had to mail everything or you had to use a courier to get a message to someone, um, it, it obviously has benefits. And uh, so for me, it's really about where are the benefits and what does this technology add and then what does it change? Because Email is another great example of it also adds a bunch of junk that that once you lower the barrier to communication, you you get more flowing through, not just the the things that would have been great prior to it existing. So it, it changes um, the way that we experience our, our technology and our environment. Now, when you think about technology, then, which is interesting because you, you've got things like Snapchat, Facebook, you know, the social media bucket. Uh, is designed to be manipulative, is designed to get you to scroll, is designed to spend as much time on there as possible so that they could sell ads. Uh, and the, the information's already come out that they are designing it this way to tap into your brain so that it's almost addictive, if not really addictive. Um, how do you separate that from your email? Do you have buckets of appropriate technology, inappropriate technology? Is it, uh, you know, is there a fine, you know, think of a highway lane and the right-hand lane is functional email that you could separate into usable, non-usable. And then on the far left is social media. Don't go in the left-hand lane. Do you, 
bucket things that way? Or are you more of you could have a little bit of everything in some kind of moderation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are things that are clearly problematic. So, for example, um, there are a lot of studies um, now, like causal studies showing that social media makes you less satisfied with your life, that makes you less happy. Um, so these are studies where they take half of the people and they actually force them to use less um, social media and they end up happier. So that's one study from University of Copenhagen and then Stanford and Penn University of Pennsylvania have replicated those studies. Um, so I think it's pretty clear that, that minimizing how much time you spend on social media is a good idea. Um, Facebook came out with this study where they showed that, in fact, the best way to use Facebook is to communicate with other people to support your in-person relationships. And then it's not as problematic, which I think is, is probably true. Uh, but at the same time, I'm a, little, I'm a little bit skeptical of anyone who says the solution to the problem we created is to use it, you know, in this way. Yeah, use it um, more and everything will be right. fine. <laughs> right. And I, I think at the end of the day... Um, it's all about managing your use, right? There are, uh, and a distinction I would also make is, is the difference between passive technology use and active technology use. So uh, I'm, I've yet to see something that's, that shows that if you're spending you know, several hours a day in a video editing software, if you're, if you're making podcasts, if you're um, doing design, if you're building software, that those are problematic. Um, a lot of the studies um, that are showing problems are things like social media or things like um, streaming television. Television, there's there's just decades of research that it's harmful. Um, I mean, they, for example, your your techno or your TV habits at, at age five are predictive of obesity in adulthood. Um, there's just there's a there's a mountain of research on television, and um, and so as we as we've transitioned from from sort of um, television that that comes on when it comes on. And um, in that time period, you have shows like, I don't know, what I grew up on, Family Matters, Full House, these shows that every all of the conflict is resolved in time for the end of the show, right, at the end of the half hour. And then you just start with a clean slate. So if you miss a week, it doesn't matter. And so most television is now switched to kind of, I think one of the first shows that, that did this was 24 or Breaking yeah. Bad, for example. Yeah. These shows that are basically movies with cliffhanger endings at each of the um, at each of the ends of the episode. And so Netflix, for example, um, published this um, information about people watching different television shows. And what they showed is that um, the, the way they sort of measured how good is this television show was, um, it, how many episodes do you have to watch for 70% of people who are, who are watching this to make it to the very end of this entire season? And so for a show like Breaking Bad, for a show like Scandal, for sure, like Walking Dead, those were two to three episodes and you're hooked and you have to watch to the very end uh, or 70% of people watch to the very end of that season. And so it's it's kind of like we've got better television, more engaging television than we've ever had before. Combine that with the fact that you have social media, which is constantly like poking you, um, that you might be missing things. And then combine that with the fact that people uh, very often are connected to email 24-7. And um, that is kind of insane in and of itself. Uh, the stats on email are, are like ridiculous in that um, I think it's 60% uh, of emails are considered irrelevant by the recipient. And yet 70% of emails are opened within six seconds. So we treat it like it's a 911 call, um, but it's definitely not a 911 call. It's just not important. Yep. 
Right. And, and, and so I think that's, that's one thing that even, even a lot of people who say, oh, I'm not on social media, we have this, this intermittent reward we get from email, right? Most of them are boring, but every once in a while we kind of hit the jackpot, so to speak. And um, so that keeps us coming back. And that's why we have, all have it on our phone. And that's how we, why we pull from the top to try and get, get new emails to come in. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to set some boundaries on it. And, it's, and it's the same. So email is similar to social media, right? Every like you get is a little shot of dopamine. Every email you get is, oh, somebody likes me. And it's, it's a bit of happiness bottled in a jar, but it's not sustainable over time. Right. right. I, I like this differentiator that you have between active and passive use, where you have mm -hmm. to be more intentional with your technology and not just using it for, you know, to sit and scroll through as you're sitting on a train, you know, what is the function and how is it benefiting you rather than just, I need to do something so I don't have to look at a stranger in the eyes. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's really difficult in terms of social situations because, you know, I'm sure you remember back in the day when cell phones first came out, it was considered like everybody hated that person who's like talking in a public space on their phone. We still it hate was like that this person. Taboo. We still hate that person. <laughs> uh, but, but, but for now, it's sort of, you have to be the stickler to say like, um, could you put your phone away while we're doing this or, or, or that? And I think, I think though, you know, there's, there's these social, there's this cultural context that we live in. Um, and then there's research on this stuff. And the research is pretty clear in that, um, you know, a, the presence of a smartphone diminishes your cognitive abilities. So you're, you're actually less intelligent. You're less able to complete kind of logic puzzles um, if there's a smartphone present. And it doesn't even have to be your, your smartphone. And then we also experience closeness and trust um, less with people when we have a smartphone present. So even if you flip it over, which is one of the, one of the new things that I guess Apple introduced, um, you can flip it over and it turns into do not disturb mode. Um, even if you do that, um, just the presence of a, of a smartphone diminishes your ability to connect with another person. So these studies are, are like they put strangers together and then they have them have a conversation. Sometimes there's a smartphone on the table, sometimes there's not. And then they have them raid each other. It's, it sounds very like social media-y, but you raid each other on how close you feel to the other person and how trustworthy they are. And if there's a smartphone present, you consider them less trustworthy. Um, and you consider yourself less close to them. So those are really important things in terms of, you know, work, in terms of family life. It's just, it's just hard when that, um, that device keeps kind of butting its head in. And, and that's one reason that I encourage people as much as possible to take things that you do on your smartphone and switch them to, to your laptop to where you only do them on your laptop. Because your laptop is, is put away while you're while you're driving, your laptop is put away while you're eating with other people. And that's just not, the, the, the smartphone is just not as well behaved. It's just too easy uh, to kind of check in with everything. One of the things you wrote about in your book is you said something, you, you mentioned at the beginning of this, you, you work with companies to help them cut wasted time with technology. And you've, the, the idea of time has come up a lot. And I feel like it's intentional time, which is what you were just talking about with the phone. And is that really step one then? So in your book, you said, you know, most people have never done a thorough accounting of where your time really goes online. 
is yeah. that step number one of you don't know not only how much time you're spending online or on your phone, but what are you actually doing on your phone and should it be done on your phone? Does someone actually just have to sit down and write it out? Yeah, I, th I think that's really useful. And um, there's, a, there's a number of ways to do this. Um, one is uh, there, there's a great app called Rescue Time, which is like a freemium software product. So you can use most of the features you would need for free. And then if you want extra reports, you pay money. But um, Rescue Time is a fantastic tool. It installs on Windows, Linux, um, Mac, uh, Android, everything except iOS right now. And um, I think they might have an iOS app, but it has limited um, functionality. But for iOS, you can look at screen time to see where where your time is going within the apps. Um, that's a feature they released. And um, so I would say that's important. And then the other thing, if you're spending a lot of time on social media, I would really recommend um, looking at kind of doing an audit of, of your input and your output. So in terms of input, go into your newsfeed and just look at 10 or 15 items and kind of categorize what kinds of things are they. Um, is it somebody doing a humble brag? Is it somebody kind of showing a, an idealized picture of their family? What's, what's kind of in your newsfeed? Or is it something inspirational? Um, and then once you get a better sense of, of what you're bringing into your life by, by scrolling in, in your newsfeed, um, I really encourage you to look at your posts, right? So what are you posting? What are you putting out into the world? Um, so once you get a good sense for both of those, I think it's, it's, it allows you to have a much more informed conversation about sort of where technology's place is in your life, because not everybody's going to decide on the same amount of time. Um, but, but we're spending a massive amount of time on our smartphones. Like the, uh, the latest, what I, what I consider believable statistic is about three hours a day is the average smartphone user. So if you add that up over the course of a year, that's 43 days. Um, so those are 24 hour days, 43 days a year, um, on your smartphone. And so, uh, I think as, as long as you can find ways to moderate that, I think most people can get everything they need to get done within an hour on their, on their smartphone. Right. So, if they get focused. Right. Exactly. If you remove some of those distractions, which is interesting. That's so a three hours a day, which leads to the next time question is, you know, I feel like every time I read something about our time, we feel like we have less time. Yeah. We have more yeah. than ever, right? Technology is supposed to relieve our time. We actually have more time than ever. Um, I just read, what was it? Enlightenment now, uh, by Stephen. Oh, Pinker, wow. Right? That's a great book. It yeah. is a great book. And he, he said something like we've gained like 12 hours a week in, in leisure time, mm -hmm. uh, over the last few decades. Are we just filling it with garbage? Are we filling it with garbage technology <laughs> use? Or do, do we need to be more intentional with how we spend our time? Is this part of, does that go hand in hand with technology? The fact that we have more time, but yet we don't recognize it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would just say most things in life are are difficult if they're good, right? You know, it's, it's easier to eat a bag of potato chips than it is to steam broccoli. Um, and, and there, you can see that kind of in all aspects of our lives. So as we get more time, it's, it's not like we're sitting there like waiting, like, where's my extra 10 minutes, you know, and I've got like some enriching activity I'm, I'm ready to do. Uh, but I do think that that is, is important as you think about sort of if, if I spent two hours less on my smartphone every day, what would I do? And the answer to that is going to be different than if you're spending two hours less watching television each day. Because television is kind of all at once, right? So 
you could make the argument, you could have learned to play the violin, you know, in these two hours every single day. Um, whereas smartphone use tends to interrupt us and then it tends to be in the margins. So it just, it makes us multitask more than we would otherwise. And that tends to make our experience, particularly of work, be more stressful. We burn out faster. And, um, and a lot of the research on multitasking or a lot of the way it gets explained is that you're transitioning more right between each task. And so that transition time, since you transition more, it takes longer. And in fact, um, Gloria Mark from the University of California, Berkeley, um, what she found is that in fact, people who multitask a lot finish things in the same amount of time, but there's this cost in terms of stress and in terms of um, a burnout. And so I think that that is, is where there's a real value to focusing yourself um, with technology. I've, I've lost with the, the question you asked. I don't know if that was close enough. It's good enough, but it's, yeah, it's, you're right. It's, um, the fact that it's, you're not actually gaining 12 hours a week in a block or in a chunk. It's, it's like you said on the margins and that makes it difficult to quantify and it makes it difficult to use it. Um, because when yeah. it comes in a 10 minute thing, it's, it's like when you're at work, you know, it's you're getting ready to leave at five o'clock. It's 450. You're like, I'm not going to start a new project. It's only going to be 10 minutes. Um, right. But I guess that's similar to, to the other stuff. Now, in terms of on the margin, though, you talk also in your book about purposeful leisure and the need to get away. How often do we need to get away? How often do we need to put the, the phones away, go on vacation, check out? Um, we talk about people don't leave work and take their vacations. Um, what could people do to make this technology release and this purposeful leisure and saying, this is what I want to do with my time. What are some practical things that they could do for that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, the starting point is, is some beliefs we have about ourselves, right? Very often, um, I talk to people, in fact, I talked to a group of, um, high school principals and uh, I, I always say we're not all ER doctors, right? We don't all have to be immediately responsive. And, and one, of the, one of the principals was like, well, like I kind of am <laughs> in the sense that, you know, he feels like he has to respond. And I think that's how so many of us feel. Um, but I really think if you're going to be effective, if you're going to do deep work, if you're going to make space for important things, you have to be able to kind of create a rhythm in your life of working intensely and stepping back. And so that can happen within a workday, but that should also be happening kind of within a month, within a week. And um, there has to be space for your subconscious to kind of spit out these good ideas from all the other um, junk that goes through your head. And um, so I think vacation is important. And I think unplugging on that vacation is absolutely important. Um, even more than just, you know, the benefits to your work of, of actually disconnecting, um, the benefits to having good relationships within your family and supporting each other in, and understanding what's worrying uh, the, the, the people you live with and, uh, and what's stressing them out and being able to be there for people 100% present, I think is so important. And it has these other benefits, um, but, but you've got to be able to, to separate yourself and I think that's where people start to feel like um, what they're experiencing is an addiction, right? When they, they, they're they away from their phone or they leave it and they go on a walk, a 10 minute walk, and they're just like freaking out. Like, what could I be missing? And I, I often don't talk about the word addiction because people think of, you know, people who are on drugs. And um, 
but there there is certainly a sort of a compulsiveness to the way that we experience technology and so separating yourself from that allows you to to do creative work in a way that you just aren't able to um, if you can't separate yourself so i'm all for um, separating yourself from work like not checking any email when you go on a vacation because also i think there's there's a degree of of planning that goes into that right to say i'm going to be gone for a week and so what that means is that if you have questions for me you need to ask them now um, to your coworkers and to your employees because um, it's just it's just so easy to to get dragged into it and if you never actually get a vacation if you're working on vacation then then that it doesn't really count as a vacation right. mentally it actually makes you feel worse because you have staring out at the beach from inside your hotel room on a conference call um yeah exactly. which is painful uh now is this a habit then that you have to create i mean i feel like if you force someone to prepare for a vacation and prepare everyone else, then they are able, it almost gives them license or permission to go on vacation. They feel like I've done the work, I've prepared for it and everything else. But on a shorter term, not just vacation, on a daily or weekly basis, we just had uh, Trisha Barger on uh, the show talking about just five minutes of silence a day in terms of wellness. Is this a habit that people can implement to say, you know what, after eight o'clock, I am unavailable on my phone, the phone goes away. And, you know, once a day, I am going to take five minutes or take that 10 minute walk, you know, I'm going to replace my time, no phone, nothing, it's just silence. Uh, would that be a habit that would promote new ideas? I feel like once you check out, you have that neurogenesis, that new ability to come up with those new ideas, because you're not focusing your attention elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, and and one more idea, if, you, if you're trying to go on a vacation and, and get detangled is um, having everything routed through one person who has your contact information so that they are kind of this filter for, is this really worth interrupting a vacation for yep, yep. Um, a trusted person? And then um, as you were touching on, yeah, like uh, if you want to uh, kind of build this into your life, I'd say, I mean, I, I always start with the technical stuff of, of removing anything with an infinite scroll right? Where you keep, you get on that thumb treadmill, right? Remove any of those apps. Um, transition as much to your, uh, to your laptop as possible, and then rein in your, your use on the, uh, on the laptop. So a scroll stopper is a Chrome extension that I made. There's other great Chrome extensions. What scroll stopper does is it, it actually um, truncates the newsfeed on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, kind of all the popular uh, social media sites. And so you can go to that site, for example, Facebook, a lot of people are into the groups. And so you can experience the groups, you can message people, you can do all of that stuff, but you're never going to get lost in that newsfeed because it's, it's only, you know, five or 10, um, content, content pieces deep. And, um, then another thing I really recommend is there's something called Stylebot, which allows you to, um, click on stuff on a website, anything. Um, and, and then you can actually click hide. And it will hide that content from the website. So especially if you're trying to read online, um, sort of going going in and um, clearing out the junk from sites that you frequent, I think is is a great way to clean up your your web experience. Um, but then, yeah, I t I totally love things like mindfulness, right? S creating some space um, for for yourself, and um, and what I think that does is it also sends a message that we're we're wealthy enough, we are, we are okay enough 
to spare five minutes. And when we live at this frantic pace, that's like, you know, I, I can't spare a moment. I think we, we send a message too to our kids and to our coworkers, to our bosses, whoever it is, that, that everything is frantic, that, that we don't have time to do these things that maybe we grew up doing. And, um, and that we just, we, sorry, it's just, it's just too important that I get this done quickly. And I think that is, is unfortunate because it's a, it's kind of a, um, it's actually a product of multitasking and we multitask because we are seeking out new information and there's always new information. And that is, that's a a big transition from sort of a pre-internet time to an internet time. And so we have to find ways, even though, yes, there's always something great. And um, I think it was Clive Shirky says, or, or, or uh, I, yeah, I think he's quoted by, uh, in The Shallows as saying, um, the problem is not that we have, uh, that we have to find a needle in a haystack. The problem is that we have haystack size piles of needles. So there's, there's just too much stuff that's interesting to you. And it's kind of aggregated and curated in this way that makes it incredibly engaging. And if you spend too much time in places that are incredibly engaging, and I would even throw video games into this, right? It's just so engaging that the rest of your life starts to feel boring um, in contrast. And so that's why I call some of this stuff like a boredom engine, right? Where it creates boredom in outside of itself. And uh, then you, you, you get in these terrible moments. Um, like there was a, there was a book uh, about slowing down that I read. And he told the story of, of almost buying one minute bedtime stories um, for, so he could put his kid to bed faster and more efficiently. <laughs> that's amazing. And then he kind of caught himself because he's like, that's the most depressing thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> because this is the, this is the thing I should be making space for. Um, and it, it's just, once you kind of view your life as, as a big efficiency experiment, um, you, you end up less creative, you end up less energized. And, um, and so I think there's certainly a place for ruthless productivity and then to step away and then ruthless productivity and stepping away so that you're kind of moderating that impulse. And I'm glad you mentioned the shallows, Nicholas Carr's book. I love that book. Um, cause he spoke a lot about this lack of ability, declining ability to focus and multitask. Um, you know, a lot of people now are unable to finish a novel because they cannot sit down and read an entire book anymore. And you touch on it in your book as well. You have an exercise on, um, listing TV shows at states and multitasking and jumping back and forth. And you find that individual productivity actually goes down when we in- increase the technology that we use. So say more about that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's a that's a, a multitasking activity I do um, when I speak. And it's it's amazing because, you know, the, the first round we go through and we spend a minute coming up with states and then a minute coming up with uh, animals or something. And then we do the same thing over again, except I change the topics and then we switch every 15 seconds. And it allows people to viscerally feel the feeling of being interrupted while you're doing something, which we all feel all the time, but we sort of don't, don't experience it in isolation. And so we don't, uh, very often we project feelings of frustration from that onto the content. So we think that the email we got is what's annoying when really it's the fact that we were in the middle of something when we got a beep um, interrupting us. And it's not, in fact, an annoying email. And so there's a, there's a lot of ways that happens. Um, one, of the, one of the more interesting things 
I like to talk about is um, this is from a book called The Distracted Mind, which is another great book, um, where they, the science behind why we are multitasking so often really goes back to uh, what's called the marginal value theorem. And this is like uh, studying foraging animals. And so foraging animals, things like chipmunks, um, the way that they decide when to transition from tree to tree. And that is interesting because it's the exact same way that humans uh, move from information source to information source. And so if you're a chipmunk, the way you decide is um, based on two things. One is the density of nuts underneath each tree, right? So if a tree has plenty of nuts, you're not about to go to a, a new tree because there's plenty here. And, um, you know, the opposite is if, if you have to keep searching around so much to find the next nut, you're likely to try and, and take a trip to another tree, risk getting, uh, getting swooped down and eaten by a hawk um, to see if you can find a better tree. And then the other, the other thing that impacts uh, how long you spend at each tree, if you're a chipmunk, is the distance between the trees. And so if it's a long journey, you're less likely to take the long journey. If it's very close, you'll go back and forth between the trees. So to translate that into our digital environments, and this is why we multitask so much, whether it be on, the, on an internet browser, that's why you have 800 tabs, um, or why you switch between apps so often on your smartphone, is because both of those factors are optimized for minimal time at each information source. So um, the distance between websites is measured in milliseconds, right? All you have to do is click and within milliseconds, that new site is up and uh, switching between apps, same, same way. It's almost immediate. And then the content is generally lower um, in terms of its density. So there's just not that much information. Even if you you know, compare something that, that seems as kind of light and fluffy as a magazine or newspaper, right? They have massive amounts of information every page, you know, much more than you'll see on a, on a web page or, or that you can fit on a, on a tiny screen of your smartphone. And so because of that, we are just multitasking by default. It's just the way that the environment is set up. So in order to change that, um, you really have to have to add some of these things to kind of change the game in terms of your distraction. Um, so I, that's where I talk about Chrome extensions and, and really finding ways to stay focused. And uh, one of the things I do personally, I started this um, sort of at the, in the last few months when I was a software developer, is I actually remove images from the entire internet. And uh, you would not believe how much of your attention is kind of grabbed at by images. And uh, so a website like uh, BuzzFeed, which is just the kind of epitome of a, of a clickbait uh, news feed, it's just, it's just so uninteresting when there's no images. And so I, I add them back for some sites um, that like, for example, shopping, it's kind of hard to shop if you can't see the thing. Um, so th that's, that's sort of the, on the extreme end. And then there's all these other little things you can do um, as well. Even, even another tip I have is, is if you're reading an article online, and very often this happens and people can't get to the bottom of the article because you click on a link. And if you're going to click on a link, hold down on Windows, it's the control key as you click the link. Or on a Mac, it's the command key as you click the link. And what that does is it opens it up in a new tab, but it does not move your focus to that tab. So you're still on the tab you were on. You're still reading the article you were reading. And you can keep going to the bottom. Once you get to the bottom, you can close that. And all those tabs are waiting for you. Um, so that's just one, one more way to kind of try and stay, um, stay at one information source for longer. So when you mentioned something like BuzzFeed, 
and and these tech companies that are giving you acorns. Um, you mentioned in the book that, that tech companies aren't necessarily inherently evil, but we regularly hear about people who have left the tech world because of the work that they were doing. Um, we know that Facebook, Instagram have algorithms designed to get you to stay within their tree or to come back to their tree. Uh, are we letting the tech companies off the hook? Or do you think that, you know, there's more of a personal responsibility to figure out what it is that you need? Yeah, no, I mean, it's de there's definitely inherently evil things that they've been doing. And, and you know, things that if if a family member did that, you would you would be told by your counselor or close friends to to stop to back out of that relationship. Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of really problematic things. I think what it what it boils down to is that uh, there's a there's a totally an attention economy in that your attention has been monetized by by the advertising infrastructure and by that data gathering. This is this is why everybody's in the in the home assistant game, right? Because they want more data. They want to know not just sort of how you interact with their app, not just how you you know move across the internet. Which, for example, Google has Google Analytics installed on seventy five percent of the top million web pages. And so they don't just know that what you search, they know how you move around the internet and they want even richer data. They want to know what you say, the tone you say it in. They want to know all these things. And um, I think really what's, what's problematic is that people hate targeted advertising. I mean, there's lots of surveys of people and, and we don't like it. And yet um, we, we enjoy the free aspect to most of our software. And uh, that's where you, you have this, this difficult problem. And um, I would liken it to, you know, if you think about food, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, uh, tons of people were involved in food production. And then today, almost no one is. But during that time period, you, you had some great innovations and you had things like machines, right, going over the fields, um, nitrogen and, you know, pouring and nitrogen fertilizers, being able to grow more in smaller areas, all of that was great. And then you also um, have people processing that food for us, right? At, at some point, they were like, we'll make a TV dinner for you. And then you're competing with all these other companies for TV dinner. And you end up adding a little bit more fat to yours or adding a little bit more sugar to yours because then people are going to like it a little bit more than your competitor. And once you get in that kind of a competition, you're really racing to the bottom in terms of nutritional value. And so that's, I think, what we've, what we've experienced with the internet. A lot of us kind of have this view of what, what is the quote unquote internet as, as this, you know, idyllic thing in the way that we would think of a farm as, you know, having a few dogs, a cow, a chicken, and, and that's not what most farms are today. And so in the same way, we've had this massive corporatization of the internet. I mean, between 2009 and 2014, uh, half of all internet traffic. So in, 20, in 2009, there were 150 companies that, that were responsible for half of that internet traffic. And by 2014, less than 30 companies were, were um, controlling that, uh, the flow of uh, information meaning that we went from this sort of cornucopia of all different types of things to really most people are going to a handful of places um, for information. And so that means that we have new gatekeepers. And so the way that Google can influence the Play Store, the way that Apple can influence their App Store, 
the way that uh, Amazon can influence your purchasing decisions. Uh, we really have new gatekeepers and that's, that's problematic on some levels. And I think people are wisening up to that. And the other thing I think that to be fair to these companies is they often, you know, said over the years, what we are is we're a platform. We're not responsible for what's on this platform necessarily. And I think if, if you look back, the, the real watershed moment for that is, is the Russian um, influence in Facebook and uh, in advertising in the run up to the election in 2016. I think that is the moment when people started to take seriously um, the well, can, way that can you can say that we're just a platform when, you know, I mean, I've, I've been offered advertising on Facebook for my business and they tell me, look, I can get you in front of every single person between this age, depending on, you know, it doesn't matter gender. I could tell you this, I could tell you their habits. If you want to be in front of a Republican or a Democrat. So that's, that's, I feel like that's more than just a platform. I feel like that's, you know, the, I'm also offering you a platform that could be manipulative. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And and I think that's that's the the big issue. And you and you'll see this. For example, um, YouTube had terrorist videos up, and uh, they didn't take them down because users were annoyed. They took them down because there was a soap company that was having their soap advertised in between uh, different terrorist <laughs> training videos. So you know, I think you can see see very clearly that the uh, the the advertiser is the customer. And what remains to be seen, though, is, is how well this will hold up. Right now, Facebook, for example, is facing a lawsuit in some of the ways that their, their app has been used to advertise. So the way it works is you upload your customer database and they find you people who are like your customers. Um, but to some degree, that, that, what they've done is they've kind of absconded themselves of, of this idea of their profiling or based on gender, based on any of the kind of protected entities um, but what I think is going to be sorted out in court is whether or not that's enough, right? Whether or not to say like, we're just a platform is enough. And well, another, willful ignorance. Yeah, exactly. Another, another case of certainly willful, willful, ignorant, willful ignorance is um, discussed in Jonathan Taplin's book, um, Move Fast and Break Things. And what he talks about is how if you go on YouTube, you basically can't find porn. There's no porn on YouTube. Right. And if you think about how hard that problem is to solve, right, millions of people are uploading um, content to YouTube, which is almost immediately available. How on earth do they do they isolate what's pornography and keep it off the platform? Right. But they they managed to do that. They managed to do that because if it wasn't a place where porn would not pop up, then you probably wouldn't go to it. And so in the same way, he kind of makes the argument they could stop having copyrighted material on on YouTube, but they don't. And the reason is they don't have an incentive to, and and basically they haven't been been incentivized to do any of those things because so far it's it's for the most part it's been um, they're they're super cool companies they've been super hip and I think people are starting to reevaluate them a little bit of their their shiny newness has has worn off and and I think it's it's absolutely valid for people to question. Um, why things are free. And, and I think it's, it's going to be interesting whether or not people are actually upset enough to be willing to pay for something better or to pay for something that respects their privacy. Um, and I think that's what will play out in the, in the, next, in the next few years. And that's where I, I mean, my, my real thought is that there will be people who care and there will be the vast majority of people who don't care. Um, but at least you'll have options in a way that you haven't, right? So, yep. and I think this is a great analogy to food as well. You can buy organic, 
Um, there are also people t selling you things that like are somewhat dubious in their value, but they certainly like have a great ad about, you know, whatever it is. And so you'll have these, this sort of snake oil salesman, you'll have the real, you know, healthy option, and then you'll have junk food. And a lot of people will continue to eat junk food. And, you know, that's, that's okay. But I think it's very important that we have options um, because, because it's just been, been too long that we haven't. Um, so an example of that is, is like your inability on your smartphone to control the interface that you see. Um, whereas if you move it kind of what I'm talking about is if you move something into the browser, you can remove features of websites that you don't like. And you just can't do that on a, on a uh, mobile device. It's going to be fun to watch over the next few years for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there will continue to be a ton of lawsuits and, and um, you know, I, th it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, how would, how would something like that happen if, if there was regulation, because these are now, you know, the top five market caps in the world are all tech companies now. And they're, and they're, you know, I guess it's GAFA, which is Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. And so how do you kind of meaningfully set things in to protect consumers, but at the same time, not limit their innovation? Uh, so fun to watch. So any Fortunately, I don't have to figure that out. <laughs> That's right. Let somebody else do it. Uh, we could just say someone, please figure that out quickly. Um, so any uh, final thoughts before we get into your book recommendation? Yeah, I would just say wherever you're at with technology, there are ways to make it more healthy. And um, if, if you feel like you can't go without it, I think that's kind of that that tends to be a problem for me. Um, almost almost anything. I mean, short of like clean water, right? I'm I'm okay that I'm dependent on clean water, um, but I think I think once we become dependent on something, it uh, it tends to shape our interactions with other people. And uh, we know, for example, social media it's it's unhealthy. And so, as much as you can do to reshape your your digital environment, I'd recommend that versus kind of trying to change yourself. Um, that there might be some place that that has for you. But I think it's very important to look practically and honestly at your digital environment and, and make sort of incremental changes until you get to a place where you feel great about it. Um, and it's totally possible. There are people that have done it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's something that takes a little bit of effort now and then, but I really don't expect everyone to care about this the way that I care about this. It should be something that you can kind of get in, mess around with a little bit, make a better normal and then move on with the rest of your life. Um, so that's great advice because everybody, everybody's use is going to be different. Everybody's needs are going to be different. So you just really have to do a little bit of work for yourself in order to find out what an appropriate use of technology for you actually looks like and what it means. Um, yeah. I think I know what your book recommendation is going to be, but <laughs> I will, uh, I will allow you to make a book recommendation. So, uh, as I always ask my guests to do. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously I think, I think what you're, you're suggesting is that I was going to recommend my own book. Um, I would I do say have some, so. <laughs> some other, some other books I'd recommend as well. But so just so people know, I do have a book, um, called digital detangler, a guide to mindful technology use. It's available on Amazon. Um, believe it or not, I'm the only digital detangler thing on Amazon. So, um, and also people can check out my website, digitaldetangler.com. Um, but as far as other books I'd recommend, so two, I mean, I've, I've got so many I'd recommend, but I would say 
Um, the Shallows by Nicholas Carr is the first book. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. It's incredible. Very well written. Also really hard science in it, um, but yet readable. And then if you really want to dig into the science of all of this, The Distracted Mind is a great book. That's by Dr. Larry Rosen, who's a psychologist, and then a neuroscientist, Adam Gasly. Um, those are both fantastic books if you really care about this and want to know more. Um, if you're interested in a nonfiction book, I really recommend The Circle by uh, Dave Eggers. This is, a, this is a book that sort of extrapolates out kind of where we're headed about uh, probably five to 10 years in the future. And it's a really fantastic read. It's nonfiction, so it, it just flies by. And, um, but, but at the same time, it's, it confronts some, some very important issues of our time. Don't watch the movie. The movie was, was nowhere close to as good as the book. Um, but the book is fantastic. So that's The Circle by Dave Eggers. Great. Those are going to be uh, all good recommendations. They'll definitely go on my, uh, on my list. Um, and I will post on, so for everybody listening, bellwetherhub.com. Come down. This is probably where you got the podcast, um, unless you got it through Spotify, Apple, Google, any of those other places, but come to bellweatherhub.com. We have a number of events coming up and you will find all of the links to Pete's information, to his website, to his book. I will link directly to the Amazon site where you can order it. Um, this has been uh, phenomenal information. Um, very timely and it's going to be timely for a long time i think as people still navigate the way that they need to uh, use and appropriately uh, manage their technology use and make sure that that it's helpful for them um and so with that pete this has been uh great i want to thank you for your time and and thank you for your knowledge and thank you for your advice thank you so much jim it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast Thank you. And we'll be uh, back with more in the next episode. So keep tuning in and visit us again on www.bellweatherhub.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Now do something for yourself. Bellweather is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellweatherhub.com where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon.